What's going on, nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one, because Nerds on History won't let us say f***, c***, mother huge and tiny little or enjoy. Brian, no, you know what? Just don't even look at me like that. Because I'm done, dude. I'm sorry. You have you have ruined Christmas in every possible way. I I look. I got some outside help. Uh-huh. Go in the nerd cave, like Melissa's toe and like Judy Garland and look. We like only Valentine's we only Day. spent two days in prison, so the whole Judy Garland thing doesn't even really come into play. I'm sorry. Two days. It was an educational experience, and we'll do an episode on it. So just just go inside and look. Just just do it. Fine. Eric. Eric, oh my God, it's so beautiful. That's right. I, I told you I got some help. Look, there's a Christmas tree, and there's stockings, real garland, and not dead people. And and the mistletoe, real mistletoe that's right that's right no body parts nothing i made sure there were no body parts in here at all i i don't know how this could get much better well that's the thing i went above and beyond and i i, I understand there's a drink called egg bog and i i made it specifically I, for I, you I, you know what it took to actually make nog. it is pretty incredible because i had to fly to england i had to find the peat pits of england drop some eggs in there ferment them and then make this actual drink from it. And it, it, it took forever, but it is superb. And just give it a try. Just give it a try. I want you to be the first person to taste it. Well, what do you think? It's pretty good, huh? I mean, it smells awful, but I'm sure that's, that's part of the, the, the taste, right? I mean, it all comp- overcompensates. Good, good job, Eric. I, I knew job. it! I knew it! I got every little detail right. I did it! Uh, what now? <laughs> Merry Christmas, Brian. Mm, Merry Christmas. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Good day to you. I think I just lost five pounds. Yeah, well, it's it's meant to be a bit of a purger, a, bit of a cleansing it? agent. Yeah, yeah, you definitely went a little overboard on the nutmeg, on that egg bog. Just well, gonna say that. Yeah, out, yeah. Out on the air, <clears throat> I found the nutmeg with the with the remains of a desiccated corpse nearby the bog, so I figured it was you know appropriate to include. And I don't think the audience wants to hear me vomit again, so let's let's uh, let's let's skip that and introduce our guest, shall we? <laughs> okay, that sounds like a plan. You all know her, ladies and gentlemen. Her time here on the podcast, each and every time co-hosting, has been one of our most influential moments ever. And to do so once more again, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sarah Ashley. Hello, Christmas lovers, all of you out there. I am wholly unprepared for this episode. This will be great. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there right now. <laughs> well, we also got a couple other special guests with us because in our studio, we have our, our first two spectators ever. Uh, loyal listeners, uh, John and Joel, you can say hi from afar. 
Hello. Hello. I thought we were spectators, not spectators. Well, then you would be in good company because we have our buddy Alan, exactly, who I'm sure has already shared with you his um, chanterelle muffin collection (laughs) (laughs) recipe. It feels kind of funny. <laughs> well, this is good. Then we have three ghosts. That's exactly how many we need for the episode. There Perfect. you go. Perfect. Mm, I wonder if that was a hint of any kind. Uh, anyway, but before we get into uh, the final episode of 2013... And our final Christmas-themed episode as well. Ever. We're just oh. going to do Festivus from this point forward. <laughs> oh, that explains the aluminum pole. <laughs> Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> Kidding, of course. Before we get into the uh, festivities, uh, let's get into some listener feedback. This week in listener feedback. Well, first off, we got one from Bjorn. I want to talk about that. Bjorn from Sweden. Uh, it's the Hej Nodar, uh, as they say in Sweden. First of all, thanks for the two very enjoyable podcasts. The film one always makes me laugh, and the history one always adds something new to my knowledge. But this message is mainly for the history nerds. I'm interested in words on and their origins. A while back, you talked about the word knight and its original pronunciation, which was new to me. The original sounded uh, very alike the Swedish word connect, or the G- German connect. It's almost the same spelling, just with the K instead of the CH. Uh, fun to see how the Indo-European languages have evolved. But uh, both Swedish and German, it now has the meaning foot soldier. Oh, hmm. Interesting. Oh. So I thought <clears throat> I should teach you something about the words in return. In the last episode, you mentioned uh, the word glug, which apparently I was spot on with the pronunciation. Oh, you mean my glugenflagen is not the pronounce? Nope, the not at all. Pronounce it. Oh. Uh, glug comes from, uh, sorry to say, it's not from the sound that you make when you drink it, even if it is a much funnier explanation. Glug derives from the word glugja, which uh, means to heat up. Um, the base glud uh, also translates to glow. So uh, it wasn't until the 1800s when it became a big Christmas tradition, even though... Uh, we have been drinking heated spiced wine since the 16th century. If you need to know something about Swedish words, just give me a shout. We would be glad to help. And if you ever visit the south of Sweden, give me a call. I'll be glad to show you around. Merry Christmas to you all. Or as we say here, uh, God Yule. So. One of my roommates is from the south of Sweden. There you go. And, and, a, and a hedge hodar to you as well. Yep. Very good. So uh, that was a great one. I just, that mm-hmm. was really, really fun. And Bjorn, don't worry. We've got something coming up that is right up your alley in the near future. In the future. In the future. Indeed. Our next one comes from Michelle. Uh, Subject is Christmas pickles. Because, again, the Christmas pickle was a polarizing topic here on Nerds on History, and it's gotten almost as much listener feedback as our episode on the Roma people, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, It says, uh, hey, nerds, oh, history. I just finished listening to your episode with the Wheel of History. When I was about eight or nine, my grandmother, my uh, father's stepmother, gave my family a pickle ornament. All I know about it is what she told me and its oral history in her family. I have no idea if it's fact or fiction, but according to her, it's a Swedish tradition. We have this, this overarching theme of the Swedes tonight. Uh, that her parents did as, a, as children in Sweden, and they brought over here when they had a family of their own. I'm not sure how searching for the pickle thing became a thing originally, and she doesn't either, but I have got to say it was uh, really good food to pick. Uh, the green of the pickle is so close to the green of the tree that it's more challenging than one would think. As a kid, I often wish it, wished it was a Christmas pomegranate or something. Uh, that's clever. I like that. Christmas banana might really you know, be striking as well, and that's good. 
Uh, also, this has nothing to do with Christmas, but I thought of it when you mentioned D.B. Cooper during uh, listener feedback. Have you heard of the game Evil Baby Orphanage? It's a nerd card game where your goal is to collect evil babies, evil people from history as children, i.e. Hitler, D.B. Cooper, and Bloody Mary, and keep them in your orphanage so that they can't grow up to wreak havoc. Anyways, it's super fun, really nerdy, and a great way to learn about historical figures. There are also Doctor Who and Back to the Future references. Uh, she gives us a Amazon link, and I think we might need to buy this. I want to play, I want to play, I want to play. It sounds pretty awesome. So, uh, Michelle... Thanks so much. Much appreciated. And that does sound interesting. We've also got one from uh, Jeff, another one in relation to the Christmas pickle. Pretty amazing. He said, nerds, I just listened to the NOH Christmas pickle episode. Truly awesome. I live in Maryland, and we have a Christmas pickle on our Christmas tree. I like to say that it stems from some old handed-down family tradition, but in reality, we bought it at the Crate and Barrel about four or five years ago. Uh, at the same, or at the time, I thought there was some sort of holiday tradition about it, but had no idea what it was. So we just made one up. In our household, the first kid to find the Christmas pickle on our tree on Christmas morning gets to open the first present. Clever, and gives the kids incentive. It's like a Christmas Easter egg hunt in a weird way. Pickle hunt. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we also have a Christmas cactus in our house. It's really just a Christmas house plant or cactus house plant that happens to bloom at Christmas time. Uh, which is why I had always thought it was called a Christmas cactus, not because of some special or symbolic association with Christmas, just because it blooms at the time of year of, of coincidence, or by coincidence. Funny enough, my mom has been growing Christmas cacti for years. It's a stronger tradition in my family than the Christmas pickle. Uh, anyway, keep up the good work, and happy Festivus to you and yours, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, and same to you as well. All right, I've got one last piece of listener feedback. This comes to us from our Facebook page. This is from Zana. Dear nerds, I just wanted to drop you a line and thank you for the wonderful patron saint episode. Well done, Brian. Um, Thanks. I really wanted to donate a little something for the ceiling fund, but I'm in the middle of switching jobs and I have zero money till January and I've already called off Christmas for my family, so instead I will give you another episode idea. Well, I have to pause for a moment because our ceiling is actually in the works right now. We have this beautiful ceiling that was just donated to us by John, who he put up in just a matter of, of minutes, really. It was quite impressive. And uh, it's doing the trick. It's a bit warmer in here. We're capturing and retaining heat. So, Zana, when you do have money, send it to the heater fund so that we can generate heat by which to capture with our new ceiling. Yeah, it's getting really taxing just to run on a treadmill. So. Yeah, it's difficult to record at yep. the same time. I'd agree with that. Anyhow, she continues, I am a multi-layer nerd, uh, but first and foremost, I am a word nerd. I wonder which other nerd on the podcast might fall into a similar category. Me. Oh, yeah, that's you. <laughs> and I think an episode on the history of the alphabet and where letters come from would be kind of awesome. I know you guys like to do history from unique perspectives, so I thought this might be right up your alley uh, with a smiley emoticon there as well uh thanks again for all of your hard work and many laughs you give me zana thank you zana well 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 two pieces of feedback that both fit in the same territory hmm. with with overlapping swedish and pickle related themes i think i think the universe is trying to tell us something i think so too I'm not sure what it is. We have to we have to figure that one out. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we might need to spend thousands of dollars doing it. Sure. Okay. Because things that are have thousands of dollars spent on them are usually worth it, right? Always. There's Sometimes. No, you yeah. never question that. Yeah, like it's Esperanto. Always... That was totally worth it. Anyway. Like... Esperanto. You never heard of Esperanto? 
an attempt to make a universal language that could be shared by everyone around the world, and it failed absolutely miserably, oh. despite thousands and thousands of dollars and many attempts to introduce it into countries around the world. Uh, oh. No, it rings yeah. a bell now. Yeah. I blame the French. I do as well, <laughs> but for so many other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming from a Belgian. Well, that's why. Yeah. So, anyway, there you go. <laughs> Actually, we're from, of... the, we're from southern Belgium, so that's okay. Anyway, oh, okay. I digress. Shall we um, perhaps discuss what our episode is about? Well, it might not be a bad idea. I think that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. What is the quintessential Christmas story, other than the one about Jesus? We already kind of accepted that's the, the Christmas story. Well, what's you the, have. What's the, what's the next one? After that, I'm gonna say the one about Ralphie and him really getting a Red Ryder BB gun. I was gonna go with Rudolph. I was thinking the Peanuts special, right? Joel Joel gives thumbs up, so he agrees. What yeah. were you talking about, Brian? Well, some would also argue, you know, like the night before Christmas, aka a visit from Saint Nicholas. All these stories evoke. Good night, certain... Moon. <laughs> Thank the you, Christmas <laughs> edition. Uh, I think they actually made one of those. All of these stories evoke a certain imagery in your head about the holidays, right? None of those would have really existed, with the exception of maybe the visit from St. Nicholas, without A Christmas Carol. And the reason why is because, you know, as many experts will attest to, Charles Dickens, in his story, really helped sell Christmas in the modern way, the way, the way that we still celebrate it today, 171 years later. Yeah, really to breathe life into it and bring it back on stage in the forefront of, of the public eye. Because for a long time uh, in England, it, it had really lost a lot of its popularity. At one point, it was even illegal to celebrate Christmas. That's right. We can thank Oliver Cromwell <laughs> Good for that Good old Ironsides. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for me, like learning about what leads up to what inspired this story, and plus a little bit about Dickens himself, because he was very much known for making his novels semi-autobiographical right drawing from life experiences for his characters and christmas carol is arguably his most famous work it wasn't his own favorite but i think it's the one that definitely catapulted him beyond what was already a notable career and the one that pretty much made him the household name yeah so um it it we can't not talk about it uh, oh sure we got to talk about dickens and we also have to talk about the time in which he lived and that unique period where in, in just a very short amount of time, only 70 years, the population in England went from 13 million to 31 million. Part of that probably had to do with the Industrial Revolution. It was directly tied to the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, it, it's all these pieces make this story really what it is and, and why it has such a lasting appeal and why it has um, permeated into the homes of not just the wealthy, right, who were oftentimes the ones who were literate or what have you, but into every single household from the middle class down lower to the point where, you know, people would be sitting around and having the story read to them if that was the only way that they could experience sure. it. Yeah. So we've already kind of set the stage a little bit, right? We talked about how Christmas had been re-legalized in the, we want to say 18th century, in the, like the early 1700s, basically. Well, not necessarily. I mean, it, it was essentially re-legalized when the royalty was reinstalled. So we're talking about, the, in that case, the restoration period. That's yeah. m early to mid-17th century Correct. with Charles II. Yes. Yeah. But that, that blow that it received uh, just prior to that was a lasting one. It was one where the, the religious attitude in England would latch on to it. And even after the monarchy is restored air quotes restored 
it would still permeate and still be one of the defining ways that Christmas was kind of kept down and kept down for a long time, nearly 200 years, really, before it starts to become more popular in yeah. England again. And why? Well, because, you know, as we've already kind of hinted at this this year, when you talk about Christmas, it's really an amalgam holiday, right? It's not just about the Christian birth of Jesus. It's also about celebration of light, celebration of winter solstice, all these different things. And the traditions that get tied to those are kind of hard to separate from them. And there were unfortunately some practices that happen, uh, drinking, dancing, for example, um, that were... General merriment. General merriment, which is very (laughs) anti-Puritan. No, no happiness, no, none of that. Fun? Never. Never. The the Puritans would have their own form of dancing. Um, It was... But anyway, case in point, anything that was considered this kind of vain merriment would have been considered profane and therefore debaucherous. So in their attempts to make England as pure as possible, they outlawed Christmas. They outlawed Christmas. And even when they brought it back, it was still like your middle school, uh, like sixth grade dance. You know, people weren't allowed to touch each other. You had to be armed. Like, <laughs> you had that away. awkward moment where you just like you're touching with just like with your fingertips. Yeah, on her waist, there's and no, you're kind of you're trying to move just a little bit, but not too much. There's someone walking around in the crowd, making sure that you're not doing anything wrong. With a ruler you. to yeah. like you know make sure there's enough distance. Between there's like a couple of people just in the corner who spiked the punch and doing crazy stuff. Oh, you didn't to the point where you didn't have punch. You had lukewarm water. <laughs> that's all you had. Flavor? <laughs> no, that's evil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, We'll have no Christmas decorations, no, a good a good whitewashing of the walls, I think, would be in order. Yes, indeed. But eventually, the Germans came in and spiced, spiced things Yes, and we have, thank you, Philippe, Prince Albert, to, to thank for that. Well, not just Prince Albert, but also King George I and George II. Exactly. They were from German origin, and I believe it was George I who ordered Handel's Messiah, which was performed in England, done near Christmas time, and was so popular that King George stood up uh, in the performance, which, no, it's not uncommon for there to be a standing ovation, but when the monarch stands up before anyone else does... Uh, he really liked it. He really thought it was quite interesting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say, he was absolutely titillated. He was excited. Yeah. Um, if anyone doesn't know what Handel's Messiah is, the famous Alleluia song that you know, we all think of when we think of the choir, so that is from the oratorio of... I'm sorry, what? Handel's Messiah. I, I might have to hear a little bit of it. No, too. I'm not going to do it. I've already, I did it on like, one of the Wheel of History episodes from whatever. I know, I'm trying to get you to do it again. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it by myself. Sarah, would you like to do, have the honors? To it's becoming kind of a tradition on Nerds on History. To do what now? To sing Alleluia in the Handel fashion. No, I'm good. <laughs> Any of our spectators? Not a chance. Yeah, nope. no, Sean, can you just time. cut in some of the Handel's Messiah just to, so that people ah. get an idea? Oh, that's nice. That's nice. I like that. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. But not only that, but you also have the introduction, of course, the Christmas tree. Yes. Which would become this this wonderful icon, not just England, but everywhere and, else. And that gets more to the point, right? That was as a refresher from last year's Christmas episode. Uh, a Very Nerdy Christmas Part 1 um, talks about this. And, um, no, sorry, Part 2. It's one of the Nerdy Nerdy Christmases. Just just look them up. You'll, the you'll find history them. one. Yes. It's, you'll find them interesting. If you I listen to you. the film one, that's a totally different yeah exactly <laughs> bag of tricks yeah forget about that one completely. um anyway uh, when you get to albert and victoria right you also get to the christmas tree becoming wildly popular in england 
yeah. particularly. And this is all happening at the birth of the Victorian era and the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Which we're talking is circa the 1830s. I mean, Victoria was queen for over 50 years, so yeah. the Victorian era spans a long time. It does. But we're talking about the early to the late uh, 19th century. Yeah, this is just post-industrial revolution. This is now the industrial age. Everything is more or less set kind of in its in its place. Yeah. And with that, you had an explosion of the middle class, and you had... You had landed gentry, right, which are people who were borderline nobility, but without the actual uh, noble uh, heritage to fall back on. And, and now you have a whole group of people who are trying to essentially identify themselves as who they are in their community and their culture. And tying on to Christmas, taking these traditions that are coming in and, and making it their own is one way of really doing that. And you find that authors like Dickens, who grew up in these middle-class families, who themselves were also plagued with hardships as well, you know, they didn't have it all that easy. They would kind of define this age in their writings and their stories they would tell. And it's just natural that all of these themes, everything that we see in the Christmas Carol would all kind of come together, right? Because this is all what's happening in and around that time, and particularly in Charles Dickens' life. Absolutely, because his father was a factory worker. Uh, <clears throat> by the way, he was born in Portsmouth, as we've learned how to pronounce. Portsmouth, yes. From one of our dear friends in Not England. Not Portsmouth, like we said it before. Yes, indeed. Uh, so in Portsmouth, uh, and his father ended up being thrown into debtor's prison. He got himself so deep into debt that that's what happened in that point of time. Instead of going into bankruptcy like you would have today, you would literally work off your debt with no forced indentured servitude, essentially, which was, but they just did it in the context of, of a prison. Yeah. In uh, fact, the whole family was essentially moved into the prison, except for young Charles Dickens, who was sent off to work to help pay off the debt of his father. And this is a extremely depressing period in, in Charles's life, because he had always been an extremely creative child, someone who was very gifted, someone who his parents recognized as being gifted, who initially sent him to a nice school, but had to pull him out during this, this time and send him off to work in a shoe polish factory. He was first and foremost in the middle of, of what was a serious problem in the Victorian era, which was child labor, uh, which... There are still parts of the world that, that definitely have to deal with this problem. And uh, in England, it was it was just as bad as their modern counterparts. And he was seeing not just children in his situation, but children in even worse situations, being sent into the mine, you know, being sent into extremely dangerous situations where it was not uncommon for these children to quite literally be killed in horrible ways, crushed or blown up or things like this. No, absolutely, yeah. I and mean, he had kids working in factories in these deplorable situations. Exactly. It just, it would be... Sometimes into the night with just candlelight is the only source that they had. And yeah. it's, it's truly awful. But really, people really awful, could get yeah. away with it. You know, there yeah. weren't any laws regulating it. There was exactly. nothing Exactly. There were no labor unions at this point in time, at least not in the way we see them today. Right. So this is very traumatizing for a young Charles Dickens, and it would stay with him his entire life and become you know, an important part of this very story that we're talking about. Yeah, well, it, it becomes Oliver Twist. It becomes Great Expectations. The idea is that these, like, young abandoned children that are put in these really ridiculous situations that, you know, of, of potential fortune and, and finding trying trying to find success yeah. and happiness. But more to the point here, it lays the groundwork for the backstory of Ebenezer Scrooge, mm -hmm. right? Because if you, you know, for those who have read the novel or seen some of the more truthful interpretations of films and plays... That's what you find out happened to his family. You know, his mother, she had to take care of the kids. Uh, him and his older sister, Scrooge's father, goes into debtor's prison. Hmm, I wonder where he got that idea from. 
and eventually gets to the point where Ebenezer's all alone, right? And he in the books he's in a boarding school, which is a slightly better situation. <laughs> slightly, than, it's an educated orphanage in this case. <laughs> exactly. Than what Dickens really had to endure. So there's already that sense of romanticism, right? Trying to make things a little more optimistic, a little bit better. Imagining where he wanted to be, which exactly. was back at school, right? But you've got immediately in Ebenezer Scrooge, you already met establish this need to achieve economic stability, right? At any cost. Because you once you've tasted that deep poverty, you never want to go back to it. Right. And and therein lies the internal struggle of that character, right? Is that he became so obsessed with that that he ended up becoming the problem essentially. Exactly. Yeah, he he, he turned into exactly what he didn't want to be. And that is so true of the time period though, because you had this whole subgroup of individuals who were exploiting the system who saw the prosperity that industrialization was bringing to england which really is the home of it all right and knew that they could monopolize off it knew they could take advantage of it and did so completely and totally indiscriminately and that is um something that some people would argue is still even going on today that uh, you know we have so many different laws against you know, monopolies and, and other ways of exploiting the system. But there are still a lot of people in this world who are trying to get around those laws and, and have their, their own way. And one of those ways continues to be child labor, which yeah. is kind of outsourced now, right? Well, here's the thing I find really interesting. Um, so aside from these deep life experiences, which Dickens was known for pulling from for his characters, the story of A Christmas Carol was also very, very loosely based off of a tale called the story of the goblins who stole a sexton. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Surprise, right? That is one of the Christmas strangest... Christmas goblins. Christmas goblins. Yeah. That, this is one of the strangest things that you well, have Well, the, the main said. character is a guy named Gabriel Grubb, who is a grave digger. Interesting. Uh, who is determined to not make merry at Christmas, is what he says, um, but is kidnapped by goblins and convinced to change his ways. Is this where elves come from? <laughs> not how, did, at all. how did they convince him? Was it like Clockwork Orange style, or like? <laughs> yes, in fact, it says here that Gabriel Grubbs' eyes were wired open and forced oh. to, <laughs> to watch the goblins commit unspeakable acts of Christmas cheer. <laughs> of Christmas cheer. <laughs> unspeakable acts of Christmas cheer. You hear that, folks? <laughs> Just God, that scene where they're where they're stuffing the stocking, and they give it so, to the children. They're all laughing and smiling. Oh. Um, this is also a story by Dickens. It appeared in Dickens's first novel, The Pickwick Papers. So he already kind of had the the formula slightly in place of this idea of being kidnapped into redemption, and then he just kind of morphed it. I mean, Dickens was was a genius, but what's even more genius is. It took him less than a month. It took him six weeks to write the novel, I should say. He started it in October of 1843, and it was done by December. So um, Just in time for Christmas. Right. Crazy. And apparently he would go on these, um, these walks uh, at night where he would walk 15 to 20 miles around London uh, at night just to keep the blood flowing. I think this also had to do with the fact that he was a pretty heavy alcoholic, so it was his way of being able to kind of let loose. I think it was just his way for him to clear his head and to think. Well, he was also, and this is this is from his own words, that he was very unhappy with his with his home life, with his personal life. Yes, which is being illustrated in that, uh, what's the name of the film that came out recently? The Invisible Woman. Uh, the Invisible Woman talks about Charles Dickens's affair he had. Which would be many, many years later, but yes. but this was all laying the groundwork for that. And Right, and... and- so unhappy in his home life, but should be really proud of his professional life because 
Dickens was one of those few writers who was really appreciated during his own time. Um, he was ridiculously popular, as we were kind of talking before. He was, he's kind of like the Neil Gaiman of his time. And, uh, I mean, his his works, which, I mean, Christmas Carol is relatively short, especially when you compare it to, like, Great Expectations. It's like five chapters, right? Yeah. It's and, more and, of a novella than anything. Yeah. And most of his works were published in editions and, and released in um, in uh, monthly uh, magazines. And that's how most people would be uh, getting all of his stories. So, like, things like, again, Great Expectations, and I keep using that as a reference because it's probably the best reference I have for Dickens. Well, it was also the one he, one he considered his best work. Too. Well, it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that one was um, broken down, I believe, into three or four parts. Kind of like the soap operas of the times. Kind of, yeah. So you would you would be waiting for the the next one, kind of like how we all feel about Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, but he was he was really wildly popular. But you know, like a lot of people who are pretty famous, they're you know they have certain dissatisfactions at home. Sure, nothing can be perfect, right? Yeah, and he used this energy to crank out the story and. It's probably the best possible scenario for any writing ever writing a novel. I mean, he was already building up some acclaim at this point in time. Like you said, he was kind of like the rock star of his time, like a Stephen King or a Neil Gaiman. I think Neil Gaiman's a more appropriate analogy, and I'll explain in a second. But it was a pretty much an overnight success, you know, and it, it was immediately adapted to the stages in London, too. It was like, by Christmas of 1843, it was already being performed. And within a couple of years, there was musical versions of it that were in circulation too. Well, I well think they, it's also, they uh, had to do that because they didn't have audiobooks, well, right? Yeah, exactly. They didn't well, have they had something better because toward the end of his life, Dickens did his own dramatic readings of his novels, and he was most known for doing a Christmas Carol because he played all these characters. And with him pretty much sitting at a desk with some screen behind him to project his voice outward, yeah, he would spin this world with words, and he would like do the little. Apparently, he'd do little hand gestures to talk about, like, the dancing at Mr. Fezziwig's uh, Christmas ball and all that stuff. Not only that, but his facial expressions were said to be exactly. so unique for each and every character. It, it, it's kind of like, to bring it back to Game of Thrones, uh, the, the narrator for the audiobook, how he, he's now in the Guinness Book of World Records for doing the most unique characters in a single series of, of, yeah, of audiobook. And it's just like that, though. He could take on all these different personalities. Right. And if you ever wonder how Ebenezer Scrooge got everyone who plays Ebenezer Scrooge plays him with this kind of this big hump on his back and his drawn-in chin and his kind of... That came from not just the descriptions in the book, it came from literally from Dickens himself performing the character of Scrooge in front yeah. of audiences. So I, I do want to note, though, that Charles Dickens, even though he had gained an initial success very quickly... He also started to run out of money very quickly. And one of the reasons why he wrote The Christmas Carol as quickly as he did is because he needed to get it published very fast because he was in debt to his publishers. And he needed to uh, get a little bit of money generated for them because they weren't going to lend him anything else. And Which, yeah. this was a huge turning point for his career because in doing so, it just set him on the fast track after this. And it would just be a few short years later where he would really never have to worry about money again. Which uh, explains why uh, he was so desperate to sue the Parley's uh, illuminated library when it got pirated. He won the case, but unfortunately the pirates declared uh, bankruptcy. So he had to pay 700 pounds in legal costs, which today would have been close to about 56,000 pounds. Wow. That's yeah. a lot of money. Unbelievable. So yeah, it's really this whole thing of him trying to get money, too. I mean, in addition to writing his novels every so often, he also found the lucrative career of performing all of his works. And it was actually 10 years later 
after doing Christmas Carol as the novel that he performed it himself. Granted, there had already been interpretations that were dramatic in place that had already been done at that point, but his is kind of the authoritative one, right? Because, I mean, who else can do it better than the person who wrote the material? Well, he knows what he intended, right? Exactly. What I really like about this, though, is, you know, just to kind of take it away from the author just a little bit, the fact of the matter is, is that our modern depictions of Christmas really do stem from the popularity of this book. In fact, even the term Merry Christmas comes from we can thank Charles Dickens for. I think we might have said that last year, but it, it bears worth, repeating. Yeah, it's worth stating again that Merry Christmas appeared for the first time as that phrase in A Christmas Carol um, originally, and still on some places um, it's Happy Christmas otherwise. Most of England, it's it's still Happy Christmas. Yeah. But but Merry Christmas was really adopted by the American audience and, and took off here state-wise. Yeah. Well, I mean, American Victorian America it was kind of an oxymoron in, in terms, but Dickens really took off in America, and especially when, again, around the same time, you're starting, starting to see, you know, the concepts of Santa Claus. Um, they're kind of taking their cue from the English as far as getting Christmas trees and really right. starting their own traditions. So naturally, the Christmas Carol would would spread to be extremely popular in uh, the United States as well. So, um, and I think this is something that was on its way already. It, it was it was certainly in the works because you do have some other literary works. Um, Davis Gilbert's uh, Some Ancient Christmas Carols in 1822 was published, in addition to uh, William Sandy's Selection of Christmas Carols, Ancient and Modern, in 1833. Those would be probably works that Dickens would take some inspiration from, I would imagine, even though he never officially stated that. That's just you know me playing a little bit of guesswork. But it, it shows that this was already a, in people's minds. This yeah. was already on its way of returning back. And the same year that you would have A Christmas Carol published, you would also see the very first Christmas card you come into existence. You took the words right out of my mouth, indeed. Totally. Uh, yeah, in the, and in the same place, right? Um, by, it was in the United Kingdom, and it was uh, Henry Cole, who was a civil servant, uh, and who was pretty much very interested in this whole idea of a, new, of a public post office, and uh, wondered how it could be used by just everyday people trying to translate messages. The first Christmas card cost a shilling, which really wouldn't have been that much today. It would have only been eight cents. But back then, keep in mind, eight cents was a tremendous amount of money, right? You're talking about things people were paying in half pennies yeah. uh, for things. Uh, and in fact, speaking of half pennies, that's it took about 20, 30 years for it to get down to that cost where people could actually afford to send Christmas cards because they were so <laughs> expensive. And they, they were print, they were printed it in color, which was very expensive to produce at this point in time. Yet, because of that, we already have this. We're selling this image of Christmas, right? We're selling this idea of getting together with family and having parties and you know staring off the cold. We get to see again lots of the greenery that we've talked about from the, the Yule traditions being worked in, and we finally just kind of. I mean, that's really when the commercialism of Christmas kind of really takes shape, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, if you are down on your luck, maybe you're going through some economic hardship at that time, and the winter is just pounding at your door, and it's just making everything worse. Maybe you're getting sick. Who knows what, right? It's a very bleak time of year, and if you don't feel like you have a lot of hope, there's not really much point in keeping on going. So if I'm one of those people, and I'm reading this story, and I can see that even someone with a heart as cold as Scrooge and a family as as poor as the ones who are featured in this in this novella can find happiness that's very inspirational to me why would i not want to adopt 
you know, what is being done in this book and bring it into my own life. And, and it would have a profound impact on the people who decided to do that and on the development of their children, I can imagine. So, you know, one might say that Dickens really helped to improve the mental state of countless millions of people who, who read the book. That's a pretty powerful impact that any one person can have. But certainly back in, you know, the 1840s, to have that kind of uh, widespread effect is pretty powerful. Yeah, totally. And in fact, I mean, it had an influence on his fellow writers, too. Um, you know, Dickens was criticized by a couple of his contemporaries, Virginia Woolf being one of them, talking about how the feeling like his work wasn't as psychologically as deep um, as other contemporaries of his time. And uh, that, that's that's a valid point. It's pretty yeah. arguable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that just makes it all the more accessible to people, which I think... And that's the point, exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly Fifty Shades of Grey was extremely popular, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it <laughs> has a lot of depth what, to it. There's not rich character development in that, in that story? Uh, no, not necessarily. <laughs> It was there's, definitely there's, a joke, by the way. Definitely a lot of development towards leather. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, the t- putting on and taking off of it. So um, there's a story that the great historian Thomas Carlyle um, went out and bought himself a turkey after reading uh, the story from Scrooge. And uh, he called it a national benefit, which was, I thought, pretty cool. The turkey? Uh, no, the story. Oh. Yes, the, the turkey was a national benefit. Uh, it was nearly our national bird. Right, which of course is, right, like, that's the famous ending, right? Scrooge goes out and buys the biggest turkey in the, the poultry shop. And, and then brings sends it, it to America with a letter saying that they should adopt it as their bird. <laughs> Ex- exa- that's how I read it. So did I, oh yeah. And the Cratchits <laughs> starved. That, 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 that was, that, that was the, the end. That was the original ending. <laughs> and Tiny Tim died. Right. But speaking more important to that, right, you you talk about Dickens bringing in social commentary to the social injustices. Bob Cratchit is a perfect example of that, too. He's the guy who's trying so hard to provide for his family, and he's lower middle class at best. And you got his kid, Tiny Tim, who is injured or sick. Again, not unlike the conditions of these kids who would be in these These factories, right? So you've definitely got imagery that really uh, hits home with people because they're, they're seeing it every day, right? And not only that, but I think the idea of having the ghosts is so self-reflective on the society of the time, which is what Victorian society was all about. They were all about analyzing themselves. Did somebody say ghosts? Oh, who could it be? It wouldn't be A Christmas Carol without Alan the Intrusive Hipster Ghost. Yes, indeed. Actually, I believe tonight he is the ghost of what is yet to be popular. Is right. I am the ghost of Kiss Christmas yet to be popular. So uh, here you go. I've made you guys some candy barrels. <laughs> oh, those are different. Fancy. Yes, they are. Cans are so mainstream. I thought I'd go with something original. I like it. Oh, it's good. It's good. Th- thanks. Thanks, Alan. You're welcome. <laughs> there we go. Oh, I always love it when Alan drops by. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's a lot nicer on your podcast. <laughs> well, it's because we feed him. Would you guys like I made some hot mold Mountain Dew? Oh. Oh, um, no, I don't think I want that. It's only because I have a hyper-intolerance to caffeine, though, I, I can assure you. Oh, uh, okay, well, I, I like all the Mount- me, then. I like Mountain Dew. Do you? Yeah. Okay. It well, goes great with Cheetos. Ooh, <laughs> yes, it does. Um, yes, excuse me, I'm going to go with something special with that idea. <clears throat> that was kind of an abrupt exit, don't you think? That was really odd. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's Alan. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> but back to the point. I think I think the ghosts themselves are so very telling, and you know, to really focus on the past, the present, and the future, is such a neat concept. It's such a it's such a great way of of really working in everything that he wanted to say and have it done in a narrative fashion that made it flow that made it easy to understand and made you interested in learning what was kind of coming next right 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 and this is still people who are very superstitious at this point in time who still fully believe in the possibility of ghosts well yeah and and he was essentially writing what started off to be a scary story Kind of like E.T.A. Hoffman, like we were talking about in the last episode. Yeah, it really is. It's kind of a ghost story with the no, it, it, with the it is gold. A, it is a ghost story. Like yeah. I'm sorry, that part where the knocker on the door turns into it turns into the face of his dead business partner. <laughs> Can you imagine if Alan did that to us? <laughs> Scrooge. <laughs> I would pee like, myself. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that was that a bit much? So, <laughs> you know, most people would have done the door knocker. I just went up and just said boo. <laughs> my own way of doing things what (laughs) sorry alan thank you for your commentary as always (laughs) no i don't uh, not to to derail your point no but but it is but it is a scary story and he kind of talks about it in the beginning of of his of his forward um where he is kind of saying you know i'm doing something different here i'm trying to make a ghost story for christmas which is odd and doesn't quite fit but trust me, go well, on the ride. Well, started around Halloween time anyway, so it yeah, makes there perfect you go. Sense, maybe, right? Yeah, maybe that's what it was. You know who else did that, guys? A, a, a man named Tim Burton, right? With The Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. You know, and you think about how many Tim people... Tim Burton influenced Charles Dickens? <laughs> no. My mind is blown! <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm most of the ghost of Christmas time travel. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> not at all no uh, what I'm just saying is that like, if you think about the, the parallel you know, if you got someone who told a Christmas a ghost story at Christmas time and it spread like wildfire thinking about all the millennials or, you know, that we hang out with and how much A Nightmare Before Christmas um, or The Nightmare Before Christmas really spoke to them and latched onto them one of a friend of ours just had A Nightmare Before Christmas party so it's like it's kind of that. I mean, it's much more to a, to an extreme, but it's still that kind of using juxtaposition to to drive the point home. That maybe was what was so captivating about the story to begin with. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that the fact that Dickens was writing it at a time when he was still writing happy endings, right? They weren't as kind of uh, depressing as they would eventually end up being with like a tale of two cities and what have you. But it is perfect. I, I think it's the perfect time for him to be writing this story. And it, I'd be interested in seeing what A Christmas Carol would have been like later in Dickens' career. Um, I, I think that it would have still been a springboard for social commentary, but I wonder if it would have had quite the cheerful ending like we see in his in his earlier works. Well, there was the sequel when uh, all of Scrooge's generosity then um, you know, made him go broke, in which case he had to go spend a lot of money at the horse races and... You know, go to debtor's prison himself, and then that was a whole other story. Do you, are, I'm sorry, do you, are you guys not familiar with that? Is sequel? that the one he was writing when he would, when he died? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I am at a loss for words. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting if we find out there was some hidden manuscript for a Christmas Carol sequel. That would be really interesting. I kind of want to write that story. <laughs> I, think, I see. Personally, I think it'd be about Tiny Tim, 
grown up and uh, seeing maybe he had become what Scrooge was like somehow. I don't know how quite. But wouldn't that be just ex- repeating the story exactly? Because Scrooge That's... himself was a child in that same similar position, right? Sure. Everything happens in cycles. You, you probably would do something different with it. Maybe he doesn't. That, that maybe... sounds like something Alan would write. <laughs> no, no, I like the idea of being overly generous to the point of going broke. I just like the fact that it's essentially a story about an older man falling into dementia and then end up becoming nicer as a result of it and giving his money away. Because if you think about it, that's that's really all about. Well, yeah, kind of. Can you imagine? I never really thought about it in the sense of senility, but yeah, okay. All of this was him having some sort of uh, psychotic breakdown and and hallucinations uh, that led to him becoming a better person. So you don't think that the ghosts were real? I don't know. I think I think Dickens certainly was writing them as being real, but I think that in the modern age, you might be able to uh, interpret it differently. Like schizophrenia? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm being terrified. Like, the ghosts told me. The ghosts, they they do, they knew. We all use, could use a, a nice, refreshing mental breakdown from time to time. Yeah. Right. If you were running the streets of London saying, the spirits, they did it all in one night. Of course they can. Of course they can. You would, today, you'd be like, uh-huh. And somebody just like, drops a quarter in your hat and backs away slowly (laughs) (laughs) it's true this is a point in time where i think uh, the general sense of people are slightly more innocent and they're they're willing to accept a story that's more whimsical uh, in nature well yeah and then also the idea that any of the insane people are preferably locked up in bedlam at this point so (laughs) there's that too yes (laughs) if you showed any sort of possible signs of even slight depression you're probably locked up in bedlam <laughs> yeah yeah that's true so um no aside from like and we talked about how like within six weeks of of a christmas carol being published as a novel that was already on stage and it was already even being performed in new york too and in london it was pretty amazing at which speed that it was being done and we talked about how there are musicals right well it's almost perennial like you you go to any town any major city and somebody has got either a, a, a nutcracker production going on yep. and a production of a christmas carol going on somewhere and it's it just it'd be criminal if there wasn't because of how ingrained in our collective consciousness this has become i just spent the day at a dickens fair where the whole thing is a christmas and of carol. course the dickens fair right how can we not talk about the dickens fair yep and so you've got that. Oh, and by the way, if you guys have ever heard of the Charles Dickens Museum in London, it's the basically they they made this out of the house he lived in. It's got over a hundred thousand pieces of artifacts about his life, and uh, they do a very Dickensian Christmas uh, where they they decorate the house in all this sort of authentic period greenery, and they they just throw like an old fashioned like Mr. Fezziwig style Christmas party. It's pretty cool. But they also do uh, Dickensian Christmas walks where they can walk through the trails where Dickens would have walked for inspiration, too. Where totally he drunkly, drunkenly stumbled? Probably. Um, <laughs> and on this corner is where Dickens fell down and was sick all over himself. Yeah. So if anyone's ever interested, Google uh, the Charles Dickens Museum in London, and you can find out all about that. And if you, hey, if you live in the UK, sounds like it'd be a fun way of celebrating the, uh, the season. But the thing I, I find really interesting is that it's okay if someone just reinterprets it over and over again because the source material is so powerful. It doesn't matter what version you're doing. Just is that just that you're retelling the story, right? It's like watching It's a Wonderful Life over again. You're not going to see that reinterpreted because, no, that was recorded and that was perfect as it was. But people like to see that be rehashed. And Well, the idea of doing ad- adaptations of novels or, or written stories is a lot 
easier and a lot less sacred than, say, remaking a film because a film, you've got a specific picture in your head and that picture is being delivered. Yeah. When you're looking at a, at a novel, you can describe so much and you can create a lot of imagery, but at the same time, it still is very collaborative with the reader. Absolutely, exactly. So. Um, and that just speaks to anything with theater, right? You, it has that, that power. But I'm going to make even a bigger claim here, and it's not really a claim, it just it is what it is. There's a big, strong tie to Deuteronomy with Christmas Carol, because if it wasn't for that being adapted for theater, Miss Sarah Ashley would, and I would have never have uh, met and become friends. This is true, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah Sarah so, was playing the part of Scrooge, and you were Tiny Tim, correct? Not, <laughs> not at all. So for those who I'd don't know, awesome Scrooge. you guys you guys know, of course, like A, a Little Mermaid and uh, Beauty and the Beast, the famous Disney adaptations, right? Alan Menken was the uh, guy who wrote the songs for all that. Alan Menken in the early 1990s also did a musical version of A Christmas Carol, which uh, was performed annually for like 10 years in New York. More than that, they had numerous famous people play Scrooge. Roger Roger Daltrey played him at one point. Uh, F. Murray Abram played him toward the end. Like, they just cycled it out with the major actor every time after the original guy played him. And it was that version that was being put on at the college I was going to at the time. And our mutual friend uh, was playing the Ghost of Christmas Past, so uh, we we went and we hang out, hung out after the show, and yep, that's kind of the long and the short of it. That's how Brian and I became friends. Yep, Hooray. indeed. <laughs> that one was actually really interesting because that one was very Wizard of Oz like in that there were real life depictions of the ghosts who would then transform into the ghost uh, when it came time. So. In the prologue, Scrooge shows his hard-heartedness to each of the these people. One is this kind of this carnival man who's trying to show a Christmas play. He ends up being the ghost of Christmas present. Uh, one is this short little fellow who's trying to get a light going for a lantern, and he ends up being the ghost of Christmas past. And then finally, this old blind woman who's in a cloak and hood uh, ends up becoming the ghost of Christmas future, who doesn't talk in that version either. She does she does her whole bit through dance which is uh, really, really cool. Like, they do this whole kind of ballet kind of thing with it uh, as their foreboding of Scrooge's demise. So it's just really cool that you can still find ways of, of reinterpreting that story and still being true to the essence of the story. And that can certainly be said about television and film as well. And we're not going to cover that tonight <laughs> because we are going to be covering that in Nerds on Film, yep. which will be going online tomorrow, yep. by the way. Yep, yep by the time you get this. so Well, I, I wanted to mention something. We're going to talk a little bit about it on an upcoming episode of, of Nerds on Film when we talk about Christmas Carol adaptations. Because there's a fantastic episode of Doctor Who, which pretty much totally retells the story, but does it in such a unique way. And it even involves sharks, which is just lovely. Um, and you are just obsessed with sharks. It's shark night for me. I don't know what it is. Um, but... There's another episode of Doctor Who that also focuses on Charles Dickens, and we wouldn't be nerds on history if we didn't at least mention this. And it was the third episode in the revival of Doctor Who, the one that, that came back in 2015 with Chris, Christopher Eccleston playing the Ninth Doctor. And their very first trip into the past, him and his new uh, companion Rose, um, they encounter Charles Dickens. And it's fantastic because you're talking about those amazing moments where he's reenacting uh, his his stories. Well, sure enough, he reenacts a Christmas Carol in this episode, uh, and in doing so, encounters the uh, not quite dead remains of a woman in the audience who this 
so-called spirit, which we later found out is actually kind of like an energy-based alien Astral being. Astral projection sort of type thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, is inhabiting it. And it's so hilarious because he's he's reading the story and then the ghost like comes out of her body and everyone thinks it's part of the production at first. And then they all realize that something scary is going on. And and it's like, no, no, this is legit. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go on this whole trip and adventure with Charles Dickens. Just I think it's supposedly a year before he dies or something to that something effect. Something like that, yeah. And it's just worth mentioning. Was actually kind of hitting on Rose in that one, too? Oh, he was all over Rose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was done with his wife by now, and right, they were right. divorced, and he had had, what, his affair with that 19-year-old gal who would later recant that... Um, because she, she ended up actually having an interesting life in the future. She ended up marrying a, a, a preacher hmm. and um, became a very, very uh, straight-laced gal. And the only time she had ever mentioned Dickens later in her life was saying that uh, the very thought of his touch made her sick. Oh. So not exactly the, the greatest that, way to end a love affair. Then again, favorable. she's also probably in a safe face because she was the wife of a minister. True. So, you know. But if we look at Doctor Who, which is also, of course, a perfect example of history, uh, then we know that he was also hitting on uh, blonde bits of stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's well known fact that Charles Dickens was, in fact, actually a Time Lord. So, you know. <laughs> well, not a Time Lord, but certainly a Time Traveler. Yeah. Because he wasn't a Time Lord. Uh, I was hoping his, you know, he could argue that his house was a TARDIS. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Brian, watch the episode. I will. Eventually. <laughs> we'll eventually watch the episode. Well, folks, you know what? It's been a really interesting month, and a lot has happened in 2013. We're looking forward to a lot of exciting things in 2014. We're really excited about going to Las Vegas, and, you know, it's the time to think about the gifts that you have in your life, and we're grateful for you guys for sticking with us for these, what, 15 months at this point? Yeah. And, um, and sharing with us your lives and giving us the consistent feedback and it's the best gift that we could possibly ask for and you know this is the last episode of our year like we weren't kidding like we we're taking a couple weeks off we'll be back in early uh, january and you know we just want to wish you guys a very happy a very safe and of course it'd be wrong to not say a very merry christmas and a nerdy christmas for that matter exactly oh yeah emphasis on the nerdy part and of course a happy and safe new year as well and we'll we'll put put out a mini episode next week just to kind of keep everyone in the loop in case someone somehow misses this episode i don't know why they would she's not like they have anything else to do um <laughs> but um happy holidays guys yeah absolutely happy holidays thank you for everything uh and all the generous donations that we have received this year uh, we, we understand that uh, it's not easy for a lot of folks to be able to do that. And in one form or another, we have received some, some really, really fantastic gifts. Um, some that we literally have under our tree right now. Some that we now, as a result, have in the form of air conditioners and ceilings and all the other wonderful things. So thank you all very much. Uh, we will be back, of course, in 2014. Don't miss us too much. If you want to, you can go back and you can listen to all of these past months of episodes. So if you missed something or perhaps you are new to Nerdonomy and you need some time to catch up, well, you got a couple of weeks to do that. And you can also listen to us tomorrow where we will have our final episode where we're all together for 2013 on Nerds on Film, uh, which I will be happy to be guest starring in as well. Or guest hosting, I should say. I'm not really starring. But... Um, you're a star. Oh, just just, just so you know that you're a star. Thank you. 
Uh, my mom is the only one who really thinks so, and you apparently <laughs> now too, which is good. Mm-hmm. That's two, but. We uh, you, you will have one other chance to listen to Nerdonomy in 2013 before uh, we're all done. Absolutely, for the year. and I mean, you've got not one but two years of Christmas episodes. You can go and dig your way back through. We got great ones. We did ones on Saint Nicholas last year on Christmas movies for nerds on film. We did one on on human sacrifice and cannibalism, which of course. You know, immediately comes to Christmas when comes to oh, mind when you think yeah. of Christmas. Well, hey, it was winter when the Donner Party was doing. It. Anyway, anyway. Let's just let that one go. <laughs> Sarah, uh, is there anything you would like to say that we can have on the podcast? I'm having a really hard time coming up with something that's family friendly. <laughs> I don't know why. This is this is tough. Um, actually, yeah. You know, for those of you who have been listening to uh, Nerds on Film, awesome. For those of you who have not, go check out Nerds on Film. Um, and stay tuned to Nerdonomy for all the stuff that we have coming up next year. It'll be a lot of informative fun. Yeah, we've had a lot of foreshadowing, actually, and some of that listener feedback that we had as well. So perhaps the the ghost of Christmas uh, future might be uh, trying to tell something the, to our the audience. The ghost of what's yet to be popular. Exactly. Which will soon be in 2014. The, the name needs work, but I think we've really got something here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. And uh, as always, go to nerdonomy.com. You can follow us through all of our social media. You can also follow us on our private Twitter accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at the Brickmont. And if you feel like following me, I'm at Sarah Ash 16. Yes, indeed. Uh, you can also hit that donate button on Nerdonomy.com and take your last chance to give us a little bit of a gift before the end of the year. Um, we are well on the way of getting a ceiling now and paying off the computer. But, you know, a little bit more couldn't hurt because we're not quite there yet. There's still some nerd improvements that need to be made. Yes, indeed. Until next year, stay nerdy. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon on the same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Merry Christmas. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Bye. Ah, so Brian, do you want to see what's in your stocking? I really, I just really don't. Sorry. Uh, All right. What? Did you give me something good? No.